Milton, it's fantastic to have you on the Fit for Purpose podcast this week. I should explain to people listening in that one of the reasons it's so great to have Anne on the podcast is that before becoming an MP, a lot of her professional life was spent working as a nurse. And as many people listening to the podcast will know, one of the things we have done with levelling up is to break it down into what we've called 14 levelling up goals. And one of those levelling up goals, which is absolutely crucial if social mobility is going to happen, is goal eight on health and well-being. And I guess for you, Anne, that's something that has been a big part of your life, but especially the one that you had before you became an MP. When did you when did you first get a sense that maybe going into healthcare and, and becoming a nurse was something that, that was going to be a path that you might want to take in your life? I, th- I think quite late in life. Um, my father told me I'd always get a job if I trained to be a nurse, which is, I think, why I did it. And I'm a bit older, so the number of options for young women um, was quite limited in those days. And I love nursing because I love dealing with people. Um, Most of my career was spent in East London around Hackney. And um, I was a district nurse. I did research. I was a staff nurse on an acute ward. And all that experience wrapped together made me understand just how important health and well-being is. It's very current at the moment because of COVID. But even back then, I think I was very aware that how people did if they had an illness, how their mental health was, was all down to their overall sense of health and well-being. And, you know, obviously you, you were working in a part of East London that clearly had, you know, its own challenges around deprivation, and all of that. Is that something that you really saw firsthand um, day to day, presumably, in the work that you were doing? Oh, very much so. At that time, that part of East London, it was the most deprived borough in the country. And yes, I, particularly as a district nurse, I saw it every single day. Um, Huge proportion of the people I visited didn't have an inside lavatory. terrible deprivation when I look back on it. And it, it wasn't really that long ago, 35 years ago. Um, it, was, it was really quite shocking. And particularly for somebody like me, you know, I was a middle-class girl brought up in Sussex. It was a real reality check that not everybody was as fortunate as I was, not only in where they lived, but the opportunities that they had to do well in their lives, and actually to live longer as well. And to have literally more of it in the first place. And would you say that, so you you go into nursing, um, and did you reach a moment when you almost thought, well, I, I suppose I can maybe stay in this area and keep doing more of that, or maybe I can make a bigger difference becoming an MP. Tell me a little bit about how you ended up making that transition, you know, what it was that made you sort of think about playing a a different role, if you like, in the system to help people. Yes, I think it was 
I think it was because of my background. It was of because of the job that I'd done. Um, I saw the deprivation. I saw a lot of the problems. I had some frustrations with the health service at that time and a feeling that we weren't really getting to grips with the, the things that truly mattered. And at that time, there were very few women, certainly in the Conservative Party, and there were very few people who got a background as a nurse. And it was quite a big leap. I was often asked how a nice girl like me ended up in a job like politics, actually. <laughs> it's not an unsurprising leap, because if you have been very affected in your working life, by the issues that face people in this country, then politics is, is actually quite an obvious jump, to be honest. Um, I had no background in politics. I'd never been a member of a political party. I'd never done any campaigning. I was um, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed when I went into it. Was there a moment when you thought, I'm gonna have a go at this? And what was it? There was a moment when I said, I'm going to have a go at this. I remember that moment to this day and it was after the 92 election and I must have been watching some footage of the House of Commons and I thought there are not people there that represent people like me. Not enough women, not enough first-hand experience of things like the health service. So you decided to have a go and and I think the first time that we met was when we were both candidates and you're probably after this going to go, no, 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 there was that the other time before. <laughs> but the first time I distinctly remember meeting um, you was when I went over from Putney down the A3 to help you in a local election in Guildford. And I remember meeting you and your team and having a great time. And really after that, I don't know whether I realised at the time, but it was going to be the beginning of a, of a friendship that would last for a long time, obviously, as we now know. Um, I remember that. It was 2003. I remember it very well, actually, Justine. And as you say, it was the start of a long friendship. And it was great we got elected together in 2005. And I think the reason that we stay connected over all that time is because we're motivated by very similar things. Everybody goes into politics to make a difference, but I think that for you and I, um, the motivation was making a difference to people who don't always get noticed, who don't always grab attention. Um, the large bulk of people actually, who want to live a good life, um, live a long life, um, and need an extra helping hand. Yeah, I think, I, I think it's, um, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, I certainly found when we, when we arrived in Parliament, for me, I found it a very odd, at times difficult place to suddenly be working in. How was it for you when you look back on it now? Well, yes, I can, I can remember sitting with a friend who knows nothing about politics in Westminster Hall and she burst into tears. She said, I can't believe that you're here. And I don't think I could believe it 
myself. It was as if I'd landed from another planet. <laughs> if you worked in the health service, you know, I've been a district nurse. And it's just an extraordinary place to work in. And I think the one thing that never left me um, at all was the enormous privilege uh, that it is to be there. And with that privilege comes the responsibility to make some things happen. So we scroll the clock forward and of course, you're actually able to, to really make a difference on the health agenda once it gets to 2010 and there's a coalition government and you, you end up as a, as a health minister. That must have been, how did it feel when you get a call off, presumably David Cameron, um, after that election to tell you a, that you're a minister, but then B, finally, you're a minister in this department that actually you put so much of your earlier life into professionally. It was a fantastic moment, actually. And a friend of mine who works as a doctor in the NHS um, phoned me up and said, I think you're my boss now, actually. <laughs> Were you expecting to go into the Department of Health? Um, no, I had absolutely no expectations. You know, the 2010 election was such an extraordinary election in many ways. And for me, particularly in Guildford, I had quite a small majority when I got elected in 2005. But there I was in the Department of Health, um, Public Health Minister. And, you know, it was fantastic because we were a new government, we were a coalition government, I had a chance to act on some of the things that I had seen at the coalface, if you like. I'd seen firsthand, I had responsibility for, you know, drug and alcohol policy, for sexual health, which is something that, you know, people in more deprived communities have bigger problems accessing treatment. I was responsible for um, health education, all the things that really mattered to me. And I think from that time, and it's with me today, you know, that the inequalities in health across this country are really shocking. And even today, if you look at life expectancy figures, I only need to drive five miles from my house and the discrepancy is eight years. So if you live eight, five miles away from me, you will live eight years less long. And that is simply by virtue of where you're born. So and tell me a little bit about, tell me, tell me a little bit about, in a sense, how health and well-being do translate through into, you know, leveling up or leveling down. What's your sort of experience and sense of it as a as a you know former nurse, obviously also a minister? I, I mean, I think the, the interesting thing, because I went on to be a minister in the Department of Education when you were Secretary of State, Justine. <laughs> and as you and I both know, actually education correlates very closely with people's health and well-being. So the more educated you are, the more likely you are to be healthy and your well-being to be good. The point is that if you don't have those two bits in place, if you're not healthy, if you don't have good mental health, if your emotional well-being isn't on the positive side, then your chances of doing well at school, your chances of um, getting into a good job, your chances of being able 
to move across the social ladder are very much more limited. If you like, they're the basics that have got to be in place before you can get a chance to change your life. And how well understood do you think that is more widely? Obviously, we had the Marmot Review, um, which has actually been updated. Um, and in a way, that very much was saying that, you know, health was at the heart of making progress on a, a range of other issues. But do you, do you think that we've almost lost sight of, of some of these links um, in a way uh, uh, overall? Or, or do you feel like actually the question now is about how we take action on them? Yeah, I, I, whether we ever had true sight on them, I think, um, is debatable. <clears throat> the trouble when people think about health and well-being, they think that they sort of break it down into: Do you smoke? Do you drink too much? Do, are you overweight? All those little constituent parts. And in fact, it's not just about that. I, I was always surprised that, um, particularly in the further education sector that sector did not make the health case for spending more money there. You know, there's a very good, there are very good health reasons for spending more money on education, particularly post-16 education. So I don't think it's entirely well understood. Um, it's not about, it's not simply about life choices, about whether you smoke or drink and those sort of things. It's about environmental, economic and social factors as well. Um, have an impact on those three things, and you will lift the health and well-being of the local population. And you only need to look at the deprivation stats around the country, which Michael Marmot brings out so well in his two reports, to see it, you know, it's as clear as day. That's what you have to do. You have to really address those economic, social, educational factors and then you will improve the public's health and well-being. And obviously COVID has been, you know, first and foremost, a health crisis, but actually it goes much wider than just simply the pandemic. It's, there's obviously been a huge impact on, on wider health, but, but not least mental health, I suppose. Oh, I think so. And, you know, for the next decade ahead, there are going to be people looking at you know, why did um, some people die and some people didn't? Who was more affected? Which communities were more affected? Um, and also the impact on people's mental health. We're seeing some conversations about that now, but I think that it has opened a window on why those things are important. And of course, post-COVID, We've got about 5 million people on furlough at the moment. So you take a region like the Northwest, there are about 1.3 million people on furlough. The fallout from COVID, its impact on people's lives is not yet properly apparent. And I think it will be a while before it's properly understood. Anecdotally, we know that those that are most disadvantaged are likely to be most affected in terms of the jobs they can get, in terms of their health, in terms of their mental well-being. And looking ahead, where do you see, so I think you're right, I mean there's 
clearly a challenge. I think there was an existing issue, obviously, around mental health and, and actually a lot of those community support structures were massively disrupted by COVID anyway for people already, if you like, part of that system of getting support. And then you've had the impact of COVID, which has really added to the numbers. And, and, you know, shockingly for, I suppose, for young people particularly. But looking ahead, what are some of the, the things from your perspective that we therefore now need to do to actually tackle those issues, like the underlying issues, but then, you know, the, the, the additional issues that COVID has brought? Well, I think it's brought the whole idea of levelling up. It's there in, the, in what the Prime Minister said, but he was talking about that before COVID. And it's brought that into sharp focus. And I think what is encouraging is that everybody's got a reason not to just carry on doing things the way they did them before. And I think those in um, a position to change things, the decision makers, the chief executives, the opinion formers, have got a sense of responsibility to make a difference that I don't think was there before. And it's very, very encouraging to see. And I guess, Anne, you know, with all of your experience in the NHS, as difficult and really challenging as this time will have been on COVID, there must be a huge desire to now tackle these wider issues, you know, beyond COVID that come out of it and, and a huge sense of playing a wider role in the levelling up agenda in doing that. I think the NHS um, will respond very well. I think some people think that the NHS, overwhelmed by the burden that they have just carried, have also had incredible support from their local communities. And I think the NHS will rise to the challenge of looking beyond their built structures, so beyond the walls of the health centre or the acute hospital trust, or the GP surgery and see their role as part of the community that surrounds them in a way that maybe they haven't done before. And how might they end up changing as a result, do you think? You know, so if that ends up being this broader perspective, if we kind of really get onto the preventative health and, and you know, getting upstream of a lot of the, the health challenges that people have, what might that look like, you know, for the NHS today today? I mean, how does the NHS play a role in careers and progression, you know, literally in and of itself? It's a massive organisation with some incredible careers within it, I guess. Well, the NHS does have a huge number of careers. And the difficulty is for the NHS, when people think of NHS careers, they think of medicine or nursing or caring for people. In fact, there are huge numbers of other careers within the NHS, both in laboratories, physiotherapists, in admin, in IT, in digital. If you think of the huge digital increase that's happened during COVID, there's a massive opportunity for the NHS to look into their local communities and do what they can to help their local community get into good jobs, get involved with the training, because actually what they would love to do is to recruit locally, and this is their opportunity for doing so. 
and the impact that can have on their local populations, health and well-being is immense. It really is. And I think that they are now going to start to truly understand that. And I get, suppose that there's been so much volunteering from people as well to support the NHS. You know, it's almost shown that there's this much wider this this wider support out there for for what the NHS is doing and presumably you know there will be people in all of those hundreds of thousands of people who've pitched in who actually may well now be thinking for the first time possibly this is a, an organization I could work for in a way that maybe they never even it has never even crossed their mind in the past. Oh I think um, the volunteering that's gone on under Covid will have an enormous impact um, for people who aren't automatically attracted to a career within a hospital or within a health setting of any description, it can feel a bit scary. And I'm sure many people would say, this wasn't for me. But in fact, if you had volunteers at your local vaccination centre um, and you've seen people coming in, you've seen what a rewarding career it is, and it's taken away some of the nervousness about stepping into this area, which many people have thought wasn't for them. So I think the volunteering will have a big impact. And we're already seeing the numbers of people applying for roles within the NHS is going up. And if the NHS can match that by reaching out to communities that maybe haven't automatically come forward, then you know it's a win-win for everybody. And I suppose it's crucial in a way also that the NHS represents communities that it's serving and, and is seen to do that as well in terms of not just who it's able to recruit at, you know, entry point level roles and professions, but then who actually progresses through that organisation, you know, to the top and that, you know, senior NHS professionals also mirror those communities that they're serving. I think it's very important and I think the NHS has been aware of it. I think particularly as you say at senior levels, um, the NHS doesn't always reflect their local communities. Um, you know, the, the number of people from an African Caribbean background, for instance, in mental health services um, at a senior level is very low. Um, it certainly was a few years ago. I should think that's still the case. And I know there has been a desire before to change that. I think COVID, with the, with the turmoil really it has produced, um, the, the way that people have had to think differently, they're now going to think differently across the piece. How can we as an NHS trust, how can we as a community health service establishment in whatever form, that comes, now think about how we can be representative of the people that we treat. Yeah, and I guess post-COVID, there's also this sense of it disproportionately affecting young people and therefore a real need to, to, to work with that generation and even, you know, a younger one, you know, that, that's coming after it to sort of give that best start, but you know, that best start absolutely being core to leveling up, but also involving 
making sure that there's health and well-being at the heart of it as well and the NHS's role in all of that working with local communities. That's right it's, it's quite interesting I, I mean you know if I think about the services local services that go into schools um, the police go into schools um, the fire services go into schools sexual health services go into schools but the wider NHS and actually the local authorities don't often go into schools and I think that what I'd love to see is that starting to happen, opening their eyes to the sort of careers, taking away some of the mystery around the health service, if you like, um, and saying, you know, our door is open for young people who are looking at careers, jobs within our service. And a lot of young people don't necessarily want to move away from the town or the area they were brought up in. And of course, you know, the NHS locally is usually a huge employer in almost every area. It will be one of the largest employers. I think the other area that I was really interested in as well to get your views on was the fact that so many businesses are now really looking at what they can do on levelling up. When you look at the levelling up goals, obviously, the first few are around, you know, strong foundations in early years, having successful school years, you know, getting the right advice and experiences. And then you know, number four is post-16 destinations. But actually, we've we've talked to a number of businesses that are thinking, hmm, goal eight, health and well-being. Where where do we feature in that as an employer? And it seems to me that a lot are increasingly thinking that they have a role on well-being in particular for their employees. Is your sense that in a sense, maybe we're just scratching the surface, if you like, on how how crucial the role is of employers on health and well-being and, and actually that businesses have a real opportunity as well to think much more strategically about how they can you know, keep the nation healthy and happy going forward? Oh, I think business does have a huge role. And when I was in, um, when I was public health minister, um, the, there were a few businesses, very isolated examples, but a few businesses who were starting to think about what they can do. And I think of one business in particular, which was um, a factory that did sheet metal works. So I think there was only one woman employed there. Um, and she worked in account. And the guy who run this business um, asked the local health authority if they would help them because this guy had a high level of sickness amongst his employees and, and wanted to do something about it. And they got somebody in to run an aerobics class. And there were only two people who turned up to the first one. It was at lunchtime. And um, the local health authority came and did health checks. They found three people unbeknown to them were actually diabetic. The aerobics class went from two people up to about 30 people every lunchtime. <laughs> and, um, they charted sickness levels, you know, dropped dramatically. So if no other reason, there's a good business case for doing this. But I think that post-COVID, I think businesses certainly beforehand had a role. Now they have the desire to want to do something about it. Look at the health and well-being of their employees for not just for 
business case reasons, but I think there's an altruism that I don't think I've seen before starting to emerge. I think there's definitely a sense that businesses are maybe in a different place in many cases in terms of how they see their relationship with a wider community, a wider country, and they've realised that they are absolutely part of it and therefore need to ask where they fit in and what they can do to help on these broader challenges. There's, there's no doubt about that. I mean, obviously, I guess government has a role as well. And one of my questions to you was also going to be, you know, if there's one policy you could change or law that you could make if you were able to do that now around health and levelling up, what would it be? Um, I would like to see that the levelling up goals um, appear on the board agenda, on every board agenda, I have to say. If you want levelling up to become a reality, you know, the levelling up goals um, provide the framework because I think a lot of these things haven't got up off the ground because nobody quite knew how to measure it. Nobody quite knew where they were aiming for. And those goals provide that framework. The one thing that I would love to see governments do and recognise is that for every pound spent on education, particularly post-16 education, um, I would focus on in particular, um, you will get more than a pound's worth of health benefit of that, I'm sure. I don't know if anybody's done those studies, but it would be to put more money, less barriers in the way that people can access education. The government is always caught between giving the taxpayer good value for money and being a guardian of public money. So they're always very nervous about anybody abusing the money that they hand out. But in their attempt to stop any abuse of money, make sure public money is spent properly, they put in place barriers that actually simply end up restricting access. And I think we need to open the doors a great deal more on this. There will always be wastage, whatever system you have, but the health and well-being benefits that could be derived are um, phenomenal. Very, very interesting. Um, and I do have one final, final question for you. Um, you've obviously, perhaps more than most, had an eclectic career I mean it's it's sort of really been a very very interesting unique journey from nurse to MP to health minister education minister of course um, deputy chief whip as well but in all of that you know when you look back to younger Anne um, if you were giving your younger self some advice now in relation to that journey and navigating it and how to make the most of life, what would the advice that you'd give, give to young Anne be, do you think? <laughs> young Anne Milton. Um, young Anne I Milton. should preface this by saying I have no regrets about what I've done in my life. And I could never have gone into politics if I hadn't started my life as a nurse. So my advice to my younger self would be, um, don't plan too far ahead. Somebody once defined luck as where preparation meets opportunity. 
And, you know, I think it's a very good um, definition. So the advice I give myself is always be prepared and seize that opportunity when it crosses your path. Don't let it go past you. Brilliant advice. And it's been fantastic talking to you. And I, I found it fascinating how you've seen the health agenda come together with leveling up and the two absolutely do go hand in hand. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been brilliant to chat. It's been an absolute pleasure.